Luke 8, starting in verse 40. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him, and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given to her to eat. And her parents were amazed, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What in your life seems hopeless right now? I don't mean it as a rhetorical question. I mean as you sift through your relationships, through your personal finances, through how things are going in different areas of your life, whether it's vocation or um, something medical, something with your kids, something with a friend that's estranged from you. I wonder where you feel a sense of hopelessness. And if you would say right now in this moment, I don't feel any personal sense of hopelessness necessarily, then where do you see hopelessness in our world? And you know, this was planned uh, a number of weeks ago, this whole series um, obviously not knowing what would happen in world affairs where millions of people this morning halfway around the world probably feel extraordinary hopelessness and desperation that they didn't feel even a week ago. So whether we're feeling that ourselves personally and maybe even intensely some of you because I know what some of you are going through or whether we feel that on behalf of other people we live in a world of hopelessness. And I wanted to jump into these two stories this morning as part of our Jesus Encounter series because Jesus encounters, as we've said, people just like you and me. He encounters problems, concerns, fears, doubts, frustrations, just like the ones that you and I experience day to day. And what we're finding in these stories as we go through the Gospels and kind of pick some of these different stories that, that show categories of people we find that the words of Jesus are, are both timely for those specific situations, but also timeless 
for the application to our lives as well. And what I want you to notice kind of right off the bat this morning is that these two stories really, um, Edith read for us two stories that interestingly enough, this is one of the few places in all of the synoptic gospels, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the same two stories are intertwined. The same two stories are woven together by three different gospel writers. And there's this common theme that we find in both stories as we kind of ping pong back and forth between these two characters. We find hopeless people desperately seeking hope in Jesus. So when this ruler of the synagogue comes in verse 41, and we read this word in the ESV, that he implored Jesus to do something for him, that's a word that literally means he is begging and pleading. Jesus, I am desperate for you to do something that I believe only you can do. In verse 44, when this woman kind of is pushing her way through a crowd and coming up behind Jesus, just trying to get through thousands of people just to touch his garment, there is a desperation that is rooted in a hopelessness in her life as well. And this morning, we're going to see that Luke shows us three things about hopelessness, the causes, the cost, and the cure, the causes, the cost, and the cure of hopelessness or for hopelessness. So I say the causes of hopelessness, and I want to point out four root causes that are mentioned here by Luke that I think are often the causes of the hopelessness that you and I experience as well, and I want to just see what, what resonates with you. So the first cause of hopelessness is something that either is in fact, or at least seemingly, is on the wrong trajectory. So you look at your lives, and many of you would say, you know, I'm not in a great place financially, but I just got a better job, or I just got a raise, or even with inflation going on, I at least see a trajectory to things in my finances that give me cause for hope. Or in, in your health, or in a relationship, you may notice areas of brokenness, but say, at least it's kind of trending in the right direction. But how many of you would say, like, there's something in my life that's not on a good trajectory as I count what's good or bad. In fact, it's, it's, in a, it's on a terrible trajectory. Okay, so this was Jairus's daughter, this ruler of the synagogue. The reason he comes desperately to Jesus is he's looking at his daughter, and the Bible doesn't say what illness she had, but it's not like she suddenly just dropped dead of a heart attack. She is, she is ill with something and then very ill with something, and the, the ruler of the synagogue realizes her health is on a very bad trajectory, which is causing me to feel a sense of desperation and hopelessness that I had not previously experienced. And I know many of you can relate just as you look at different things in your life. A second cause of hopelessness is something difficult or painful in your life that seems like it's not on God's radar, right? And I, I use that like kind of colloquial term, not on God's radar, meaning like you are praying and praying and praying for this person, this situation in your life, and you feel like God is blessing other people and other circumstances around me. Like this friend has prayed a lot less time for this less serious thing, and God just, boom, just answered their prayer, and it's all better. And, and I'm, I'm struggling maybe even to support them and feel happy with them and for them because something in my life that's very serious, that's very bad, that's very painful, it just seems like God's not listening at all. And this could be this woman who for 12 years 
feels like God, Yahweh, you know, the God of the, the Jewish people. She's like, I'm praying and praying and praying and praying and praying and nothing is happening to change my situation. It's, in fact, it's getting worse. I just feel like, like the sky is stone and my prayers are not getting through to God. And again, I know a number of you can probably relate to that, just feeling like I don't think God's paying attention to me, even if he's paying attention to other people around me. A third cause of hopelessness here, again, we're weaving these two stories together, is something difficult or painful that's seemingly never going to end or it's never going to change. And again, looking at this woman where it literally says in the text, she's gone on with this hemorrhage of blood from her body for 12 years. She's tried everything. Another gospel says she spent every last penny on the best doctors of her day and things only get worse. And there are situations in your lives, like this situation in her life, that you're like, this is, this is never going to change. You know, I experience chronic pain like some of you, and, and I know some of you, you've reached that point, you're like, it doesn't matter what I pray, it doesn't matter what I try, it doesn't matter the doctor or the specialist, and then my friend recommends like, oh, have you ever tried this? And you're like, only 10 times, right? And that's multiplied across not just your physical health, but many, many areas of your life that you say, God, it seems like this is never going to end, this is never going to change for the better. And that's causing hopelessness. And then the, the fourth cause I see here in the text, and this is not exhaustive. I'm not saying there are only four causes of hopelessness. I'm just saying as we look at this specific text, these are, these are here. And the fourth cause of hopelessness is something difficult or painful in your life that seems irreversible. Okay, so there comes a point in this interwoven set of stories where people that serve the ruler of the synagogue come and say, don't bother the master, don't bother the rabbi anymore, your daughter is dead. And some of you may even have situations in your life that you're like, I prayed and prayed and prayed and I hoped and I hoped and I believed that God was going to make a difference, but now something happened and it cannot be reversed. And it could be like, I prayed and prayed and prayed for my marriage. I worked and worked and worked on my marriage and God just didn't seem to answer and now divorce. Or I prayed and prayed and prayed for this work situation and I got laid off. I prayed and prayed and prayed for this financial situation and just like one bag of thing and I, I lost it all. Or like literally what happens here, some of you have prayed and prayed and prayed for a loved one and death. And you're hopeless because you're like, how do, you, how do you reverse what's now happened in my life? This painful thing, this bad thing is now a permanent part of my story. And I know that those four things, the trajectory of something in your life, feeling like I'm not on God's radar, feeling like nothing's ever going to change, feeling like this is now irreversibly bad in my life, causes hopelessness to countless numbers of people. And I want to turn our attention then to the cost of these things. So as all of that is going on in Jairus' life, in this woman's life, in your life, in my life, Let's just look at these, some of these factors in this story. And all of this, I want you to just think about how this is mounting. And I'm, I'm talking now about this woman. So there, there's a time factor where it says 12 years. Okay, 12 years. You know, I've got kids that are seven and eight, and it seems like they've been around for forever. I mean, this is four or five years longer than that, that she has tried and tried and 
just the time, you know, the weariness of that grind of every day praying, hoping that something would change. And there's a cost that that takes on your body and your mind as you just wait it out and nothing changes. There's a financial factor here where it says she spent all her money. So she's now like probably a single woman living in great poverty because her money's gone. There's a, there's a frustration or a, even a disillusionment standpoint where Mark, the gospel, in chapter 5 tells us she had suffered much under many physicians. And you know that frustration when you, your solutions make something worse? And you just feel this mounting frustration of like, I am more hopeless than ever. And I mean, there are, there are treatments that I could do probably for like my back pain, like herniated discs that I'm like, I don't even want to try it because I don't want the disillusionment of like that not working either. And some of you can relate to that, that even the solutions you try lead to further frustration because it doesn't fix your thing. And then this factor of just finality of like, I'm not going to be healed. This finality of like, my daughter is dead. And these kinds of things take a toll on the total person. And as we think of ourselves as holistic people, as integrated people, there is a physical toll, like on your body. There's a mental toll, a psychological toll on the way that you're now wired to think about the next thing that's happening in your life. There's a financial toll. There's a relational toll. Many of you tried to do relationships with people that are hopeless and depressed and you find it very hard, and they find it extremely hard as well, even though part of them is like, I desperately want this relationship, and I need this relationship. And sometimes, and you know if you're depressed or deeply discouraged or devastated by hopelessness, you're trying and trying and trying, and in a sense, you're, you're pushing people away, that you're like, I, I need your love, I need your affirmation so badly right now, but there's, there's a relational toll that this takes on our lives. And there's also a spiritual toll, if we're honest, of just like, I'm becoming dis dis discouraged in my relationship with God, and like, do I even believe this stuff anymore? I don't want to read my Bible, I don't really want to pray. Okay, I'll try again, I'll put myself out there again, and then nothing changes, and the hopelessness ramps up, and there's a spiritual toll. And you see this, this incredible spiritual toll that this woman in particular would have experienced because what you don't see right on the surface in this text is because of her specific condition, which was a hemorrhage of blood. You go back to the ceremonial law of the Jewish people in Leviticus chapter 15 and you find out this woman would have been excluded from her worshiping community. So a woman who's already financially drained at wit's end like men, the mental and psychological, the emotional strain, the, the broken relationships that she experiences from. Now she's marginalized spiritually, can't literally go to her synagogue and just sit and hear like a message of encouragement from her local rabbi because of her condition. Just layer after layer of tolls on her life, on Jairus' life, on your lives. And, and before I go already to the final point, which admittedly is the longest, okay? So don't get your hopes up. We're not done that fast. But I want us to think, is it, is it possible, even if you relate to some of the things I'm saying, even if you relate to some of the things going on in this text, is it possible that God is up to something good even when you feel this toll in your life? See, we, we live in a hedonistic culture, which is just a, 
It's shorthand for saying we are pleasure seekers as a culture, and we run from pain as a culture. And but I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that we have painkillers and surgeries and, and many labor-saving devices. It's not like those are bad things. Those are good things. But, but you know we are allergic to pain and suffering and brokenness as a society. We want to fix everything and experience pleasure instead of pain. And so when, when pain comes in our lives, and again, whether that's physical, emotional, mental, relational, spiritual, we automatically, because we're wired as, you know, good modern Western people, we're like, that's bad. You know, it's bad. And we're just asking God, just take it away. But I'm not so convinced that the toll that these things take on our lives is bad. It's not all bad. Because you know, many people will never even begin to see the beginning of God until they come to the end of themselves. So if God is leading you into a place of hopelessness or he's permitting this in your life where you feel this desperation, is it possible that God is trying to say your resources, your solutions will never work, but I have a hope for you. I have an encouragement for you. Because many of you know that if things are going well in your life, or not even well, just mediocre. You know, if you're like, eh, my marriage is okay. My finances are okay. My job is okay. My, my grades are okay, you know. And you can go through all these areas. My health is okay. Well, when things are okay, do you feel a desperation for God? It's okay. My plans are going okay. I mean, they're, they're still intact. They're not going well, but, you know, I'll get there. Do you, do you sense a desperation for God? But if you recognize some of these causes, some of these tolls in your own life, some of these costs, I say there is hope, and this is the third point, the cure for hopelessness. And at this point, I'll just give you the simple theme that I think we find in this text is that the hopeless find hope in the touch of Jesus. I think that's the simple theme that is these two stories and these two lives are intentionally woven together. Both of those stories collectively are showing us the hopeless find hope in the touch of Jesus. But there are two important things here that are also woven together along with these two people's lives and stories. And that is your personal faith and the touch of Jesus. And I think it's important to talk about both of those things and the role that they play. And, and by the way, before I dig into faith and then the touch of Jesus and what that means, I want us to note that this is the cure for hopelessness no matter who you are, no matter what your experience is. And I think that's part of the incredible thing of these two stories that in God's providence, they happen together at exactly the same time. Just the, the providence, because pay attention to this. You, you have a man and a woman. You have someone who would have been in that society a ruler of the synagogue, incredibly rich, versus someone who's incredibly poor. You have someone who's powerful and someone who's powerless. You have one religious and social insider, the ruler of the synagogue, and you have one who's completely marginalized and is an outsider, both to the religious community and to her own social community. You have one who has a family, very clearly articulated in the story. You have another who is probably completely alone and has been for years. You have one who has a sudden crisis, 
and you have one who it's been a slow burn for 12 years. And what is God showing you? There, there could not be two more different people than the ruler of the synagogue and this unnamed woman. And God is saying, it's the same cure. When you're desperate, when you're hopeless, it's the same cure. It's the same solution. And the first piece of that is simply faith in Jesus. And when we as modern people talk about faith, we tend to go two places immediately. We tend to say, okay, what, what kind of faith are you talking about? And, and how much is enough? Right? Because prosperity gospel goes there. If, like, if you're not getting the answers to your prayers, it's because you don't have enough faith. You know, and, and of course, the way that you prove your faith is by giving a ton of money to the church. Okay? And that's, that's not true. Let me be clear. That's, that's not what the Bible says. It's not about the, the, the kind of faith and the, the amount of faith. I think we're asking the wrong questions because if we look at both of these characters, what I think is so beautiful about it is you could easily and fairly describe both characters' faith as imperfect or even immature. You know, both of them have sought other solutions for a period of time to their problems and they're only coming to Jesus now because things are so desperate that they're like, I, I am literally at wit's end. There, there is no other option for me. And when all my options have run out, finally I turn to Jesus. That's not, that is not the paradigm of what discipleship to Jesus looks like. So the scripture's not holding these people up and being like, be just like them. Be just like Jairus. Be just like this woman. What exemplary faith. That's not the point. The point is almost the opposite. They have a kind of faith that you and I can relate to. Because in all these areas, in relational stuff, in financial stuff, in health stuff, in uh, your grades, you know, like in just discerning the will of God. And some of you are hopeless and like, I can't figure out what God wants me to do with my life or even like tomorrow. In all these areas, the point is not that you need the perfect faith. Um, furthermore, the woman's faith in particular seems to be tainted with like a little bit of mysticism. Did you catch that? Um, Luke, as a gospel writer, doesn't tell you what she's thinking. The other gospel writers actually tell you that as she's pushing her way through this crowd, she's thinking to herself, like, this is a special rabbi. This is a special faith healer. If I can just touch the hem of his garment, maybe I'll be healed. That's... Again, that's not the paradigm of like biblical discipleship. There's not other examples of people just going and touching the hem of Jesus' garments, but that was a kind of a residual thing from some mystical religions of that day. But I want to make no mistake that both of these characters are exhibiting gutsy and audacious faith, even though it's not perfect, even though it's not mature. So Jairus, I said that he's a ruler of the local synagogue. So what that means is he has a position of power. He has a position of prestige. He has a certain status. He has a certain reputation. So long as what? So long as he plays nice with the scribes and Pharisees. So long as he plays nice with the religious leaders of his day and of his town, he will continue to have relative power and riches and prestige and status and reputation. So when he's pushing his way through a crowd to get to Jesus, like the guy that all the religious leaders hate and have already turned on, he's risking everything to say, I'm giving up my status. I'm giving up my reputation. I'm giving up the riches 
I've got to do something to save my daughter. That's pretty gutsy faith, even if it's imperfect. And this woman who I mentioned, she's marginalized as an outsider of like, you, you can't even stop hemorrhaging. So, so you're, you, you stay over here. And because of how long this has gone on and how much help she had sought prior to this, she feels the shame, she feels the stigma of a life that is marginalized, that is outside culturally and socially from the circles that she would have wanted to run in. So when she's pushing through this crowd on this day, chances are she knows people know me. People know my issues. People know my problems. But I've got to get to Jesus, even if I'm violating numerous social and cultural standards of my day. I've got to push my way to Jesus. And I, I want to just pause there and say, is there something potentially stopping you? From, from just getting to Jesus, from saying my life is about Jesus, my healing, my hope is in Jesus. Because both of these people had to make a decision that I'm willing to forego the, uh, the approval, the affirmation of my culture, of my peers to get to Jesus. And I think sometimes the same is still true of us today, that we have to be willing to forego the commendation of our society in order to just say, I'm getting to Jesus. My life is about Jesus. I'm not ashamed of that. By the way, we're not just assuming that this woman had faith in Jesus. You notice in verse 48, Jesus publicly commended her. I love that. I mean, I'm going to come here to do a moment to the touch of Jesus, but like this woman who would have been an outsider all along Jesus is now calling attention to her, not to humiliate her, not to shame her, but to say, y'all want to see what faith looks like? It looks like this woman right here that you've put outside your worshiping community for well over a decade. This is what faith looks like. And this is the important point, that faith is not about the quality or the quantity of your faith. It is about the object of your faith. Jesus illustrates this over and over and over again. If you have like the grain of a mustard seed kind of faith in the true Lord and Savior, everything changes because it's about the object of your faith. Now, I just picture, you know, these, these situations, whether it's like a hurricane washes ashore or there's a flash flood or something like that. And you all have seen these videos on TV um, growing up, maybe even recently. I remember the, the flash floods up in northern Colorado a handful of years ago. And you always end up with these videos of like people just clinging to little trees and other little objects as their salvation, as the floodwaters rise and just rage around them. And they know like, if, if I let go of this thing, this little sapling, like I will drown. And what you know watching is you're like, you, you, you're watching the, the raging power of this river or this moving body, body of water just swirling around them. And you're like, that sapling is not going to hold up. And then the, you know, the Coast Guard or SAR or someone like that sends this helicopter and this guy's coming down on this metal cable with this harness and is, is like, okay, I, I got you. And it's such an illustration of faith to me of like, wait, I, I got I to gotta let go of this thing that I'm clinging to, to not drown. I've got to let go to be rescued. And what's interesting is 
that individual could have all the faith in the world of like, no, this sapling's gonna hold, I'm not gonna let go of it, and, and they would drown because the sapling will be washed away. Or they could have just the tiniest bit of faith in the rescuer to actually just say, okay, I don't know how this works, but I, I'm letting go, and they're saved. Because it's not about their quality of faith or do I have enough faith? It's just, what is the object of your faith? Is the object of your faith someone who can truly rescue and deliver you and give you hope. So that's the faith piece of this. But then the other side of this I said is faith in what? In the touch of Jesus. And what is it about his touch? As you look at these two stories in particular, and then you can go back to the gospels this week and kind of broaden this out to many, many other stories where he touched people. He touched lepers. He touched the blind. He touched the lame. He touched all kinds of broken and sinful people, and he allowed them to touch him. And I'm just like, man, what is, what is that about? Well, we see one thing in verse 46. Because in the midst of this crowd, as everything's jostling around, Jesus pauses and is like, whoa, hold on, who touched me? Which, you know, just like picture that. Like, you know, I don't know, you're going in and out of a Broncos game or you're just somewhere like packed in a concert and there are just thousands of people. And you're like, hold on, friends, like who touched me? And you're like, you would say what Jesus' disciples said. Like, what are you talking? Like a bunch of people just touched you. And he's like, no, no, no. And you notice what he says. I felt power go out from me. I felt dunamis. Like where we get our word dynamite. Something with intrinsic, inherent power. Like I'm... This is Jesus. I'm not relying on an outside force to somehow push power through me to other people. Jesus is this inherent power. And to, to touch him or to have him touch you, there is this power. Then you look at verses 54 and 55 when he goes in this upper room at this family's home and he closes the door and it's this private intimate thing. But I see him just like sitting on the bed next to this now deceased little girl and taking her by the hand. Like, don't you love that? Like, taking her by the hand. It's not just like, I will say this incantation from a great distance. He goes to her and sits on the bed and takes her by the hand and says, Talitha kumi, Aramaic for little girl, arise. And you see not only power, but you see authority where he can command and even death itself has to let go in a way that we don't imagine death letting go. So you got power, you got authority, then this, again, this, this tender compassion that in both these stories, Jesus is not so hurried of like, what are you, why are you touching me, woman? I got crowds and crowds of people who are waiting for my next awesome sermon drop. No, he stops. And the, the tender compassion to say, Woman, I need to call you forward. Why? Because he's saying, because this woman who you have ostracized for a decade and a half, I recognize. And she is healed and she is whole. And what he's doing by doing that publicly is there's a tenderness, there's a compassion of like, now y'all got to welcome her back into your worshiping community and take her into your lives because by her faith and as an example of faith, she is made whole in her body. And those little words of just like, little girl, arise. And she does. And you see the power and the authority over death. But then the next thing, like, how cool is this? He's like, somebody give her something to eat. Like, this little girl's going to be hungry. Like, she's coming back from the dead. Like, she, she, she missed her snack time, right? And just like the love of Jesus. 
And I love that in the touch of Jesus, you have this power, this authority, and this compassion come together where neither has to give and compromise for the other, but he can be fully powerful, fully authoritative, and fully loving at the same time. And that's so important, friends, because we know people in our world who are all power and no love, like Vladimir Putin. It's great. You have authority. You have power. No tender compassion. You just, you will get what you want and other people will bow to your whim and to your will. And we also know people that are like essentially no power or very little power, very little authority, but all love, like your grandparents, you know? And when you got these issues in your life, you can go to them and be like, I'm hopeless, I'm desperate. And they're like, ah, here, here's a few bucks. Like, I love you. Like, do you want to do coffee or tea or something? And like, that's the love. That's better. I think love without power is better. But Jesus is not compromising. He's like, I have way more power than a world superpower. I made him. I can crush him. I can punch him in the mouth and break out his teeth as the psalmist prays. But I've got this tender compassion at the same time. Incredible. And I want to just conclude this way, that, that what Jesus is calling us to, what this text is calling us to is not, I need to figure out some way to balance my personal faith with the powerful, compassionate touch of God. It's not like, well, what's, what's the right balance between those two things? I choose a different word, synthesis. It's the bringing of those two things together in a way that accomplishes more than just their separate parts. Bringing together my little bit of faith but in Jesus and this all-powerful, all-compassionate touch of Jesus. And I want to illustrate it this way. Yes, Jesus has this power. He has this authority, but you and I have to connect to it, okay? So I'll illustrate it this way. All these lights in this room, um, obviously right now at this moment, they have power, like electricity, we call it power, right, going to them because they're on. Um, I also have this phone with this really cool app where I can go on here and say, so I, what, what if I want these lights to go off? And they go off. Now, what, what we've done is the, the power is there. Like, I didn't get rid of the power. The power is there. And without them, I could be like, I could be touching this all I want and being like, come on. And um, just a few weeks ago, we had, I think somebody hit a power pole and the whole transformer was down. We had a whole face of power loss to the building. And I could sit here and be like, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Nothing's going to happen because the power isn't there. But the picture of scripture is the power is there. Like Christ has the power to heal. And something like this is the recognition of like, I need to connect to that. And this is like Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or something and voila. So we've opened that switch back up. We can close the switch off. We can open the switch back up. And I will tell you that there are times where Jesus, God, works in his power even when we are not trusting him with 1%. God does that in his kindness, in his grace, in his mercy over us. There are times you've seen it. You're like, God will never do this. And then he does it. And you're like, wow, thank you, God. Like, help my unbelief. But I'll say the usual way that God works is not just working against you, 
But again, working in synthesis, synthesis with you, of basically saying the power's there. And if it weren't, you could call and call and call and try and nothing would happen. But the normal way God works is saying, will you depend on my power? Will you call on my power? Will you believe that it's there for you? And again, when that happens, the hopeless find hope in the touch of Jesus. And I want to just conclude by warning us about something right here before I'm done that I don't want you to hear me saying, because this text is not saying, what we often do with hope is like, even as I'm talking this morning, some of you say, yeah, I do look at my finances or my, this health diagnosis or this relationship like my marriage or this thing that happened with this old friend or roommate where it's like just so seemingly irrevocably broken and you're like, okay, okay, what I, what I hear you saying is, okay, I believe, God, that you will do this for me. You will fix this thing, and the outcome will be what I'm praying for. And I want to just caution us that the, the ultimate hope that Scripture is calling us to is not, I have faith in an outcome from God, or I have hope in a particular outcome from God, but rather I have faith and hope in God, period. Okay, does that make sense? Because you, you could be a Christian in Ukraine right now saying, I hope and pray that just every tank stops and these people just drop dead in their tanks. Like, like that story in the Old Testament where 185,000 soldiers woke up dead the next morning because the angel came over the camp and they're just gone. Like something like, and you could pray and you could say, I hope for this particular outcome. And, and then what happens so often, I think even in our fledgling Christian faith is we are, we are more devastated because we're like, oh God, I hoped in you for that outcome and you didn't do it. So like, what's even the point? And I'm just saying, let's be careful that we're not saying my ultimate hope is that God fixes this thing or this person or my health or my finances or this situation, but rather my hope is in God. And I want to show you one more incredible truth here, one more incredible detail, and then I'm done, okay? Um, even if you don't get the solution that you are praying for or that you want, you don't get the deliverance you want, you don't get the blessing you want, you can still get Jesus and look at this in the text. With Jesus, the end isn't actually the end. Okay, too late is not actually too late for Jesus. And this is so important because some of you have lost hope or you're about to lose hope because you're praying for a specific outcome and you're like, well, that opportunity came and went. And this other person got the promotion. This other person got the job that I applied for. They got accepted to that school. And now all the spots are filled. And now I'm going to go to like this junior college that I never wanted to go to. Or this health diagnosis. Like things are getting worse. And you're like, it's, it's too late. Or there's a finality to something. And it's just never, ever going to work. And I think that's part of why in the tenderness of God, not just for this one man or this one family, but I think his tenderness toward us where he's interweaving these stories. And at first you notice like Jairus comes and says, my daughter is very sick. And he's like, okay, I'm coming. And then we don't know how long this conversation takes with this other person because Jesus is not hurried. But these people come and say, there's no reason to trouble the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. That's too late. You, you can't get your miracle because the thing has happened that we feared happened. And, and Jesus is like, oh, death? No, she's, she's sleeping. And everyone laughs, and the word is ridicules. They're like, you're crazy. 
You have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, yeah, I do. Because even the death of something with Jesus is not the death of something necessarily. And by the way, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about these Ukrainian believers, for example. I'm thinking about some of you that have very serious health things. Um, the reason that we put our faith and hope in Jesus instead of putting our faith and hope in a specific outcome from Jesus is that one treats him as God and says, you are the end that I seek. The other treats Jesus as a means to an end. This is like, in a sense, I'm God, and your job is to play like Tooth Fairy or Santa Claus and give me the thing that I really want, which is not you, but is this particular outcome. So in one sense, we're letting God be God, but we're also saying I'm putting my faith and hope in the God who has the power and the love to conquer death in the end so that we have all of our like wildest hopes and dreams fulfilled forever. Okay, and you know that's the end of the story. Like with our faith and hope in Jesus, like th this body's passing away and your body's passing. We're, we're all going in the ground one day, you know, like, like death is 100% so far. I don't know what causes our death, but I know that we will die. But the death is not the end. Because even then we have put our faith and hope in the God who died for us to cause us to live forever with him, to give us the great and ultimate hope. So the hopeless find hope in the touch of Jesus. Let's direct our hope, our faith toward him this morning in prayer and cry out for his touch in a thousand different ways. Like, Lord, reach down, touch my life with the hope and the healing of Jesus, even if it's not exactly the hope and healing I'm, asked for, I'm asking for. Give me the hope and healing that my soul desperately needs.